I was leery to mention this book in my introduction, fearing that too many of you would have it on your summer reading list, and I may just be providing a spoiler alert. But I was looking at this book called International Conflict Resolution After the Cold War, and in the third chapter, which was very enlightening, the chapter was about the conflict resolution policy since 18 or since 1989. Now, if your eyes are glazing over, you'll have to stay with me because there's a point here in looking at this book. I think it would be better named The Art of the Threat because that's really what the third chapter is about. It's, it's about how to make other people do what they don't want to do, but because you think you're better than them, then you make them do it. I mean, that's kind of the summary of the third chapter. And the authors are looking at how this goes about and, and the ways that you make threats. And how do you make a threat in a way that somebody else will actually comply to it? And they broke it down like these professors love to do to two phases or steps. And the first, they say, is the importance of credibility and character. Is there, for example, a historical precedence for the action? Does the leader have public support? Does the leader have international support? What's the president's reputation? Is the request important enough to the one making the threat? And does he or she have the resources to fulfill the threat? So anytime one nation threatens another, the other nation goes through this process where they're trying to figure out the credibility. Will they really do what they're claiming to do? Is this the kind of a thing that seems to be fitting with this leader? And then the second thing that every nation will do is they will uh, determine the degree of difficulty to refuse compliance. So sometimes even nations, if they think, I bet they actually will do that, and I bet they can do that, we're still not going to do it. I mean, e even if it ends up with us strewn all dead all over the place, we're still not going to comply to it because what they're asking is too significant. But on the other hand, if they deem it to be a simple thing, they might comply just simply to avoid what has been threatened. Exodus chapter 5, verses 5, 6, and 7 is all about the art of the threat, about credibility, about power, and about the degree of difficulty to which the people are being called. And, and what we're going to find in Exodus 5 going forward is a very different kind of form of combat than we tend to see today. We, we tend to see combat happening happening simultaneously. Like I'm throwing bombs and you're throwing bombs and we're doing it at the same time. But there's a form of doing dueling where one party will show, here's what I can do in an effort to get the other person to back off. And our text this morning is the first move of that posture where Pharaoh is going to say, I will show you why you need to listen to me and comply to me. And then as our text moves forward into a future sermon, we will find God's response. But what our text begins with is Moses and Aaron going to Pharaoh. And the text begins by saying afterward. So it's important that we know after what had happened. Well, Moses and Aaron, they came to the Israelites and they told them about what God was planning to do, about the victory and the faithfulness of God's word. Aaron performed the signs that they were supposed to perform. And the text tells us the people believed and they bowed down and they worshipped. Don't you love having an early win when you're going to do something? Especially something you're not very confident about. And you get in there and it seems like, boy, this is actually working. And so in chapter 5, verse 1, when they go into Pharaoh, they do it, I would imagine, with a little bit of a skip in their step. Chest puffed up a little bit. And they go into Pharaoh thinking, boy, he's going to roll over and things are going to go just like it did with the Israelites. And so they go into Pharaoh 
hopping and skipping and jumping all along the way, and they begin by saying, thus says. And the formula is known to everyone that this is, this is a sort of an edict that is about to be given and about to be offered. And the most important part of the thus says statement is who is the one saying it. And so as Moses and Aaron begin and they say, thus says, Pharaoh is going to be very attentive to the one who is sending them. Because what he is going to do in response is going to be based on who is saying and what it is that they are asking. And so Moses and Aaron complete the statement, thus says the Lord. The Lord there is the name that was revealed in Exodus 3, 14. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go so that they may celebrate a festival to me in the wilderness. So they come into Pharaoh, his own house, commanding him in the name of this God, Yahweh, who was revealed in 3.14, saying, let his people go. And you know what Pharaoh's doing. He's replaying in his mind the credibility and the character and the ability of this one who is making the threat. And Pharaoh's belief is indicated in his response. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should heed him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Now here's a little kind of cheat thing that you need to know about this text and many other texts going forward. When God gave his name to Moses, the name is Yahweh that he gave them, every time that word is used in your English Bible, you'll see that word for Lord all in capital letters. L-O-R-D, all caps. This is the revealed name of God. And Pharaoh's saying, I don't know Yahweh, and so as a result, I will not let Israel go. Because what we do in terms of obeying or not obeying depends on who's making the request, doesn't it? If you were to pass the border between, the, between Canada and the United States, there's a fairly predictable order. First of all, you go to the toll booth and you pay your toll, and then you go to the customs officer who asks you questions and then they release you. I had a friend on a particular occasion who rolled up to what he thought was the toll booth, and the customs officer said, please, sir, would you please remove your sunglasses? He snarkily replied, yeah, I bet you sure would like me to, but I'm not going to. Because he thought he was talking to the toll booth officer. And so he said, why should I? And the guy said, well, because I'm a United States customs officer. You've never seen anybody take off their glasses so quickly before, have you? That's the who is making the request, and it dramatically determines the kind of outcome that we have. See, the art of the threat is all about the character or the reputation. And Pharaoh says, I don't know, maybe this God is from some sort of this, this one making the cross is some, some sort of like small localized country. I mean, is this Liechtenstein coming to the United States telling us what to do? And Pharaoh will not comply. He does not know this God and he cannot find any reasons why he should listen to him. And now, over the next several chapters, we'll have this repeated phrase so that you will know. God wants to be sure Moses and Aaron know what's happening. God wants to be sure the Israelites know. God wants to be sure Pharaoh knows. And God wants to be sure that the Egyptians know. By the end of this duel, God's goal is that everyone will say, I know. If you say Yahweh, everyone says, okay, yes, character, credibility, yes. 
I know this God. But Pharaoh's not quite there yet. Not quite ready to listen to this Yahweh of whom he knows no idea about. And so Pharaoh decides he will do a little bit of his own flexing of his muscles. And so in chapter 5, verse 6, that very same day, in response to them saying uh, what God wants him to do, he himself offers a command. So God is commanding Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says that very same day he will offer a command to his people. And here's his instruction. God says, let them go. And Pharaoh says, sure, I will let them go. I will let them go and gather straw because I'm not giving it to them anymore. The people are scattered across the country looking for the stubble and the bricks. And this is all a power play by Pharaoh. If the people are going to comply to this foreign God, he will give them reasons why they ought to comply to him and to his instructions. And so the taskmasters in chapter 5, verse 10, and the supervisors of the people went out to the people and said, Thus says Pharaoh. And this is very intentional. God has come and said, here's what's going to happen. And Pharaoh, in defiance, says, no, actually, here's what's going to happen. And so the epic battle is laid out. This is God versus Pharaoh. One saying, here's what will happen. And the other saying, no, indeed, here's actually what will happen. And the people are stuck in the middle of this. To whom should they listen and to whom they should obey? What do you do when mom says one thing and dad says something else? Puts you in an awkward position, doesn't it? And so the people who had formerly worshipped and, 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 and given themselves over to God, the people who said, let us go to this land, well, things start to change. In chapter 5, verses 9 through 21, seven times the language of service is used. You'll find it as work or servant. So power... Pharaoh is going to do is he's going to show his power by making unreasonable demands of the people, make bricks without straw, and by force, he beats the Israelites. And he wants them to know, who are you going to listen to? You better be listening to Pharaoh because he can make life miserable if you don't listen. And so the people who are fair-weather Israelites, who previously worshipped God... Now they come back and they, in essence, they repent and they say, Pharaoh, we're sorry. Uh, yeah, we should never have gone against you because you are clearly have more power and ability than this Yahweh of which Moses speaks. And so the people they go in 515, the supervisors who are the Israelites, of course, they, they go to Pharaoh and they cry, why do you treat your servants like this? And there's three things that are really important to notice in terms of the hearts and the movement of the people. The first is when they are under the oppression of Pharaoh, to whom do they turn? They turn to Pharaoh, don't they? Remember who you're going to call. It's an important question. And Pharaoh, they think, can solve the problem because he actually has the power to do something about it. And when they go to Pharaoh, the text says, and they cried. Which if we've been reading as we have through Exodus, the people have been crying out and God has heard the cries. But they're not going to God with their crying now, they're going to Pharaoh. And what do they call themselves? Your servants. God had told the people in chapter 4 that he's going to lead them out, they'll go to the mountain where they will worship. The other word for worship is serve. God is saying these people need to serve me and now they are reconfessing who they will serve. We are Pharaoh, we are your servants 
servants. The people have turned away from this God whom they worshipped and celebrated at the end of chapter 4. Moses, of course, gets stuck in the middle of this rebellion. Chapter 5, 21, the people say to Moses, The Lord look upon you and judge. You have brought us into a bad odor with Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. They're afraid of what Pharaoh can do. Ironically, look back at chapter 5, verse 3, and Moses said, hey, we ought to be worried about what God can do with the sword, and they show no regard for what God can bring with the sword, and they're more concerned about what Pharaoh is able to bring with the sword. Who in their mind has credibility and power to deliver their threats? The people are now once again saying, Pharaoh, you will get your way with us. And they've turned their back on the God who brought, promised to bring deliverance. Moses, he may fare a little bit better in that whenever he has his hardship, he turns to God. But he goes to God and he says that God is mistreating the people and has done nothing to deliver them. So remember, this is the setting of an epic battle. And you glance over at the scoreboard. And what's the score right now? Pharaoh 1, Yahweh 0. Whoever he had called to be on his team and say, no, 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 I'm going back over to Pharaoh's team because things look much more promising out there. I didn't realize he could do all of that so quickly and so forcefully. So I'm now back under Pharaoh's dominion and not this God who has come to us. And all the while, God is waiting passively. God doesn't appear to be worried, concerned. Or threatened. He's just waiting for his timing. And we get that sense of timing in chapter 6, verse 1, when God says, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. Indeed, by a mighty hand he will let them go. By a mighty hand he will drive them out of this land. And that word now is really important because it shows that God has been waiting to Pharaoh say, Give me your best shot. Show me what you think you can do. And now God is saying, and now get ready because I am about to act and I am about to show you. And so what God will do in this text is he will first of all reaffirm things. So, so chapter 6 is a lot of echoes. I've heard this before. I've heard this before. God will say things like, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. He says, I appeared to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. It reminds us that he has heard the groaning, which of course Pharaoh didn't hear. And he has remembered his covenant. And then we have these promises that are offered. I will free you. I will redeem you. I will take you as my people. And I will bring you into the land. See, what God's statements surround is this notion of character and the character of God. Because people are choosing between two leaders. Both appear to have some element of power, but God is really asking them, which kind of a leader, what character do you want of the one who will rule over you? Do you want the one who beats you and oppresses you? Or do you want the one who will treat you like a son and bring you back as his own children? I, I, I don't know why, but as I was reading this text, I kept thinking of the movie The Rescuers. You know that really old movie? It's not that old. It was 1977. That's the year I'm born. Say, it's not an old movie. It's a new movie, right? 
But 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 in that in that movie, this young girl Penny is is taken by Medusa. Ooh, what a scary name! And the only reason that she takes Penny out of the orphanage is because she's looking for this diamond that's so big that Penny's the only one who's small enough to get down into the well to get the diamond. And things aren't really nice for Penny and, you know, the alligators or crocodiles or whatever, those scary things are around and she has no freedom. And she puts this message in a bottle. And who gets the message? Two little mice, Bernard and Bianca. And they go and they risk their lives to save her, not for their own sake, but for Penny's sake. And, and, and imagine at the end of all of that, and Penny is given the choice, Penny, somebody's going to adopt you. Medusa is offering to adopt you. And this good and loving provider is offering to adopt you. Which do you choose? Round one, the people said, we choose Medusa. I mean, at least we know the evil we're getting there or something. Now God re-reveals his character because he wants the people to choose his adoption that he's offering. He will take them as his own people. And God does all of this because he wants both the Israelites and the Egyptians to know who he is. But Moses also needs to be reminded and needs to be reaffirmed. And so in chapter 6, verses 10 through 13, we have repeated elements of the call, the commission, and all of those sort of things. Have you ever needed that? God asks you to do something. Oh, yeah, yeah, and you get in the middle of it, and boy, boy, this is much harder than I thought it would be. And God re-reminds us what he's doing, what he's calling you to, and what he's up to. Moses needs right now this second calling, this second commission, and this second assurance that God remains in control. And then the text has this, what for us is this unusual location of a genealogy, chapter 6, verses 14 through 27. But I think all of that is to say, as a reminder before we get into these great mighty acts of God, God's working with two as human as human can be people. I mean, this is God versus Pharaoh and God at work in humans. And sometimes when people do amazing things in submission to God, you say, boy, well, they must just have been cut from a better cloth than me. And the genealogists say, no, very human people are about to enter into this. But the significant change that happens is in chapter 7, verse 6, that Moses and Aaron did so just, uh, they did just as the Lord commanded them. And this becomes a turning point. What happens when people begin doing just what God told them to do? We will come to find God's mighty hand and God's deliverance. A powerful God at work in human people. And I guess this text makes me wonder what happens when life gets hard. And I think that there's a couple of reminders here for us. The first is that God's presence does not guarantee immediate results. And the second is that God's results are not always in line with our expectations. I mean, the Moses from 5-1, the people worshiped and bowed down. We're going to go in and we're going to tell Pharaoh this. And then, crash. Moses, I give up. God, you're not doing anything here. You ever get there in life? God doesn't show up when you think he should show up. And when he does show up, it looks different than you think that it should. Peter Enns tells the story about when he was a new convert in college and he was very passionate about sharing his faith. And he had this one friend in particular who would never come to church with him. 
And so they're having this discussion back and forth, and they both had this same pastime that they loved, mini-golf. And so Enns came up with what he thought was a God-inspired idea. And he challenged me, he said, if I beat you in mini-golf, you have to come to church with me. Brand new Christian. The guy says yes, and he's like, oh, clearly this is a God who if you challenge somebody to a mini-golf game and they have to come to church, you're going to win the mini-golf game. Guess what happened? He lost the mini-golf game. And he said for him as a new Christian, that actually was a very big deal. This was a chance for God's name to get glory. And it seemed very reasonable just to win a game of mini golf so someone could be exposed to the Lord. But he said he learned very quickly a lesson that he's now been learning over the decades, which is God doesn't always show up when we think he will and in the ways that we think that he will. See, seven times in Exodus, we've been told about the covenant with Abraham. Now, we remember Abraham. Did God always show up immediately when Abraham thought and in the way that Abraham thought he would provide? Or did he have to wait after God's promise 25 years for God to fulfill his promise? So God's reminding us, hey, I'm the God of Abraham, which is a reminder I'm the God who does things in my own timing. You won't always understand what I'm doing. You won't always understand why it appears as though I'm sitting on the sidelines. 400 years, people have now been enslaved. Where is this God? Where is his deliverance? It's not absence, but it's absent, but it's according to God's timing. So I think too often we think about God like that old game that I think girls used to play and occasionally boys tried to see if it worked too, where you take a flower, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me. And I think a lot of times we're back and forth with God based on how he's performing by our standard. Yes, he loves me. I got the job. He loves me not. I lost the job. He loves me. I have a healthy baby boy. He loves me not. We found out there's a complication. Do we ever go back and forth evaluating God? He loves me. He loves me not. But our text here is to show that God works in his own way, with his own timing, doing his own thing we remember his name, don't we? I am who I am. God didn't reveal himself to Moses, say, I am who you want me to be. I'll do what you want me to do. He is a God who is independent in and of himself. Have you ever had a circumstance where you realized that you had a limited perspective? That you thought you knew what was going on and in the end you really didn't have very much of a clue about the larger picture? I had that experience just yesterday. Our family was walking down the church sidewalk here while two of our kids were on their scooters scootering around and we're walking and we get almost down near the end of the, the road here and I look back and here comes one of the kids speeding down by themselves. Smart enough to know, uh-oh, something's happening. So I turn around and start walking. Out of breath, I get the report, there's been an injury. Being somewhat old and somewhat lazy, I sequestered the scooter. I'm not going to run all the way back there. And so here I am on the scooter, racing down the sidewalk just right outside here. And the very concerned sister decides she will also come. But I didn't realize that at the time. And I raced past the, the male lady. And, and the kid behind me raced past the male lady. And a few seconds later, the family came walking by. And the male lady said, did that man steal that little girl's scooter? <laughs> She had a piece of the story, didn't she? And I wonder how many times with God we say that to God. 
God hears what's happening, and God says, whoa, 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 there's a bigger story. There's more at work. I have a plan. I have a purpose. I have timing. When we worship the I am God, we need to let him be the God he is. See, what I find interesting in Exodus, as I do in much of Scripture, is that Israel is often referred to as God's son. And because Israel is referred to as God's sons, we have certain expectations about how easy and pleasant and delightful their lives will be. But it often wasn't easy or pleasant or delightful. The Israelites experienced hardship. They experienced pain. They experienced what felt like the rejection of God. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, God says of Jesus, This is my son whom I love, and with him I am well pleased. And we say, oh, we have another son. And we expect, oh, well, then this son's life will be easy and will be light and will be delightful. Until we read. And we find out, know that this son also, he suffered, faced persecution. He endured turmoil. So then my question is, what should we expect, we who are called the sons and the daughters of God? Should we expect everything will be easy and light and simple? Or shall we expect that like the children of God who have gone before, that we ourselves will endure persecution and hardship and and challenge, that we'll find ourselves in perspectives and places where we wonder what God's really doing? And then it all comes back to the art of the threat. What is the character and the credibility of God? Have you read God's resume lately? It's awfully long, but he's always faithful. Every promise he has made, he has fulfilled. And so if I'm going to choose between my perspective of what God's up to or God's long resume of faithfulness, I'll always choose to side with God's faithfulness. He is the God who will do what he says he will do. Perhaps not in the ways I think he will do it or in the time that I believe he will. But God is faithful and righteous. So if you were given the choice to allow God to adopt you, would you? And that's really the invitation that we have this morning is God never forces anyone into submission, but God calls all people into submission. One of the acts that happen in baptism is that we are adopted into the family of God. God becomes our father in a very real and very necessary way, and then we live in faithfulness to that God. So if you've not yet become a son or a daughter of God, that opportunity is available this morning. Or maybe you are already a son and a daughter, and you lost that perspective. You thought, hey, it's all falling apart, and and now you realize, no, I think I trust God's faithfulness, and you want prayers and encouragement. Um, We'll be available. There'll be some folks in the back who will pray with you or encourage you um, if you need that when we stand in just a moment to sing. But I want to finish this morning with the word of blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. As we leave from here, we don't go by ourselves. We go with the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, with the love of God and with the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Let's stand together and sing. And if you have a need, we'll meet you in the back.